You're listening to Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. All right, thank you so much for staying with us. Uh, what we know for sure, okay, is that I, I, I doubt it. I really doubt that the world will ever be the same again. I think this has become such a big issue for the world over that I think all of us have to start thinking now about the future. Um, we are about to end what is officially the lockdown uh, period here in South Africa. Of course, we know that there are different levels and different phases, but it's, it's about to happen. So how ready are we? As, as communities, as businesses, as, as people who engage with one another. And what kind of world is this going to look like? Tessa Dooms is a social analyst, and uh, she's also a director of Jasoro Consulting. She joins us on the line. Doris Yoon is also a senior futurist at the Institute of Future Research at the University of Stellenbosch Business, uh, Business School. Thank you both for joining us, and good afternoon. Good afternoon, lady. And <laughs> hello, Tessa. Are you still there? I'm here. Doris, good afternoon. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Lovely to have you both. Thank you so much for joining us. So, as I said, you know, very, very quickly, without even warning, the world changed overnight. Tessa, what do you think is going to be the world? I don't think there will be ever be post-COVID in the, in the sense that it will be finished. But when we, for instance, next week... After our official lockdown, what do you think the world of work is going to look like? So I think that, um, of course, we're going to face a lot of um, unemployment as a result of COVID, just because um, particularly small and medium enterprises um, will be struggling and will um, probably face having to reduce staff numbers in order to go through a recovery period. So I think the first thing we need to know is that um, a lot of the jobs that we, we had may not, um, at least in the immediate future, be available. Mm. But there's also going to be a lot of new opportunities that are going to raise, um, that are going to come out of this crisis. Um, And those opportunities range from the kinds of opportunities we're seeing, for instance, in the supply of PPE. Mm. Um, A lot of people are finding opportunities there that they didn't have before and are pivoting their businesses, um, some of their logistics businesses or other kinds of businesses, to do that. So I think we're going to see um, a lot more innovation that's necessary if we're going to get um, new businesses coming up or um, the businesses that are struggling finding new ways of doing business so that they can retain staff or um, hire new staff. Do you anticipate, Tessa, that even with the quick innovation that business people have 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 had to come up with, and 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 I know entrepreneurs are very very quick sometimes. Will the red tape allow us to take off in that sense? In the sense that, for instance, uh, you know how when you register your business, you would have to classify your business. You would have to say health or medicine or whatever the case may be. In the systems that we currently have as an economy, will it allow the innovation to rise as quickly as the entrepreneur will rise to the occasion? So, um Yes and no. I think systems are going to be slow to reform, and that's just because a government bureaucracy is not necessarily the most efficient. Mm. And so um, the ways in which red tape needs to change is not going to change at a systems level very quickly. And one example of that for, um, is um, informal traders, for example. Yes. So we've seen in the last four weeks how government has, has um, slowly altered their stance 
on how um, formal or registered a business needs to be in order to get support or be allowed to trade. Mm. And so they've gone from you need to have UIF and all of these things in your business um, all sorted and your books must be managed to now saying you can get a permit and you can trade and we're finding ways to create a relief package even if you're an unregistered informal business because government is realizing that it's not going to be able to get everybody up into that system quick enough to get the relief to people, but also that a lot of people, um, a lot of people's businesses is not going to be able to handle trying to even do that in the first place. I mean, um, an internet connection is the first barrier to most informal businesses, for example. So I think the government is going to have to realize its own inadequacies and is going to have to find either new systems that it develops, suspend some of, the, some of its systems, and entrepreneurs are also going to need to um, I think play in the space of of finding new ways around those systems too. So um, instead of trying to just pivot your existing business, um, you may need to register a new company. Yeah. Um, and so things like that are going to are going to happen. But we're going to need to think much more creatively. And I think there's no other time that I've seen government as open to suggestions mm. from the public mm. and from sectors as they are right now. So now's the time for those businesses themselves to speak up about what they need. Doris, welcome back. I know that we had lost you there for a minute there. Thank you. Um, what, what my concern is with all the greatest intentions in the world, and I really have seen and what I feel has been an agile reaction from government to the situation at hand. So, I mean, I take my hat off to how agile they've been and some of the solutions they, they've brought to the table. What, what I think, though, COVID-19 has done is to also show us structurally where we really, really are lacking. And I'm speaking now and I'm thinking of, for instance, freelancers. So there are many things in place at the moment that cover certain types of people. So if you were officially employed, you are sorted. You can go to your, you know, your, your company can go to UIF and, and get money there and sort you out. If you fall into a category of a, what they call an SMME, there is some sort of fund there from small development. I, I know the minister said yesterday that it's almost about to finish, but it's there and you can get that money there. But I'm afraid there is a huge sector of this economy that doesn't actually fit in anywhere because they're not quite in a formal economy. They, they fall in the fringes. And I'm also thinking about those young people, the gig economy young people. They don't want to be employed. They haven't been employed. They've been freelancing here, there and everywhere and doing their own thing. What can we learn about what we've just seen now? Um, and how do we fix that, Doris? There's a, few, there's a few things. The first is this crisis is giving us a beautiful new insight into the systemic complexity of our economy. Because if we only look at the formal registered economy, we, we, we get sort of just a, a little slice of a view of our economy. Yeah. And for the first time, I am experiencing just like what you were saying just now, that we are experiencing an openness toward the other kinds of economic activity that is happening. Um, and then in the second place, my money is actually on those people that are doing non-standard work. Mm. They've been hustling all along. Mm. This is not a new or a strange experience to them. Mm. So in terms of coping with the crisis and the changes, 
I think the um, the non-standard work people mm-hmm. are a little bit more fit in terms of they are used to look for little bits somewhere, whereas the people in the more formal economy that that one big supplier and services to one organization, they sort of fraud now because they never had to hustle for business before. Um, so in that sense, I think we must also look at the positive things and where things are. And then in terms of how we fix it, what we do, we must take one small little step back at the Institute for Futures Research. We all also always work with longer timelines in terms of, okay, so what will we, where do we actually want to go? Um, and that is going to determine what our definition of a fix is going to be. If our view is that the government should be the sole custodian and the issuer of everything and the government has to give money, then we're going to go towards grants and that kind of stuff. Mm. But if our worldview is that the position of government and regulatory bodies is to create an enabling environment where businesses can make their own decisions and individuals can act in terms of economic activity, that is going to shape the initiatives that we expect government to do to to fall in a different kind of field mm. where they just make the 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 playing field um, open and accessible for people that want to be economically active. Tessa, Doris made an interesting point, and I've actually heard this point coming through from Europe, where a lot of freelancers, particularly artists, have had government support and and have always been slightly more comfortable than, for instance, South African or African artists. And, And they were making the point that, in fact, if anybody is going to survive this as artists, it's going to be Africans and South Africans because there is such little support given anyway that they as as Doris was saying they keep hustling but my concern is even with that resilience how do we guarantee that we do not deplete them yeah so I mean there are a lot of um, different parts to this the the downside of the hustling is that you're dealing with a very different kind of society right now that by definition is going to have inherent restrictions because of the health concerns, right? So, um, I mean, we've been talking about informal traders a lot, but they they represent a very good version of this hustling that happens. Mm. Um, And freelancers are in a similar position in that um, they're not, you know, bound by anything, so they can take up, multiple opportunities, but the truth is that opportunities are now starting to reduce a lot. Mm. And so government's first response has been to the formal sector, to give the cushioning to the formal sector because those are the people who are on their books. Mm -hmm. Those are the people they can find, they can track, and they can trace. And they can figure out what level of damage those people are incurring and what level of support that they can get to usher them through this time. And so precariety has the, the benefit that you can do multiple things and that you can, you, you know, you can find different ways to pivot quite quickly, but it also has the downside that the state has no way to really find you and support you and know what your needs are. So there's a bit of a double-edged sword there. Mm. Um, I think that what, what we do need to be cognizant of in terms of where the opportunities lie for freelancers, for informal traders, for small businesses, 
is that they can they can reinvent themselves to respond to some of the new crises and the, some of the new solutions that need to be found yeah, in, in a much more flexible way than big corporates can. For a big corporate to re-strategize and turn their strategy around and decide that they're going to pivot from selling insurance to mm. selling PPE mm. is a much more complex task. And so small businesses are going to have a bit of a head start in their ability to pivot and their ability to maneuver, and that's going to be a good thing. But I think we, we, we do need to know that we have a strong state that is, uh, on the one hand, a very good regulator. We need the state to regulate, and I think that's an important point, mm. but also offers the kind of protections so that if you do fail, because that's the other thing that small bu- smaller businesses mm. um, have the problem with, mm. is that if they fail, they fail harder and quicker than the big businesses do because the big businesses can cushion themselves, whereas the state does need to cushion smaller businesses a lot more than it does now and vulnerable people a lot more than it does now because when they fail, the failure is harder and impacts them uh, much more directly. And in fact, Doris, to, to, to the point that Tessa was making about failure and entrepreneurship, and small Mm. business is that we unfortunately in this country unlike some countries there really hardly is any cushioning there is no room for you to fail if you fail we don't have that culture of allowing uh, a young person to try and try and try again and fail and fail we don't have that culture you fail you fail hard and it's almost the end of you and that isn't that a concern Doris it is a little bit, but there's also, I, I've been involved in numerous entrepreneur development projects and small business things, and many times we see people that enter that development pro- program, they come there for a fourth or a fifth or a sixth time. So, I, and even then, um, the help is available to them. So, um, sometimes we we tend to make that statement that there's no support for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the nice thing that I am seeing is that CEDA and CIFA, even if somebody comes from a record of failed businesses, mm-hmm. they still help them if they have a feasible next idea. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at the feasibility of the idea and say, okay, now we're going to support you. What do we need? So I think there are systems in, in support um, and then something else that I think we, we must not take our eye off mm. is what the real issue is that we are de- dealing because a lot of the narrative is around, um, so what level are you, when can I go back to business and that kind of thing. Yeah. But that when we make decisions in, in businesses of any size or as individuals in our own houses, yeah. We, we must remember that it's not about the rules or the level of lockdown or something primarily. It is about a real virus, and we don't know about it. Mm. We don't know the virus well enough yet. Mm. We don't know whether you, you'll be getting it again if you, if you got it once. Yeah. Um, we don't know enough about people that are not showing symptoms but are, that are actually sick. So we don't know the virus itself well enough. And then our primary concern as individuals and of people that want to start being economically active again is to keep our people safe or as safe as what we can, Um, whether that's the people that are working for us in business or people that do business with us. So we have to focus on creating processes to enable the safety of people and then be economically active. So pick the stuff that you can make money from first 
and shorten pay cycles, that kind of stuff, so that we could just energize the system. Sure. Doris, you know, from from what Doris was saying, Tessa, for me, it's such, such a difficult balance, such a difficult balance, because the the realities on the ground are if if you are somebody who had, I don't know, a nail bar for argument's sake, you know, the trickiness of that safety and the profession or a makeup artist, that profession, the the ability for you to go back to work, your ecosystem itself has probably been depleted. That's the first thing, despite your professional knowledge. And and I, I do get concerned because, I mean, I, I hear the fact that we've got all these systems in place and there's agility and all of that. But Doris was making the point, we still are dealing with a virus we are not very clued up about. And so that's the real danger, Tessa. Yeah, so um, the virus presents um, a need for, it's not just about, you know, going to another industry, but also rethinking and reimagining mm. many industries, and especially high-touch industries. Mm. And that goes from things like the beauty therapy industry, but also just the eventing industry itself. Yep. And so um, it's going to take more than just pivoting to something else. We're going to have to rethink these these um, industries. And I would encourage everybody in sectors that are particularly high touch, mm. They're going to have a longer lag. Yeah. They're going to need more relief and a, more of a cushioning. But they're also going to have the greatest opportunities to come up with a way to reimagine these sectors and re-figure out how to um, make uh, money in ways that they weren't able to before. Yeah. And I think the other thing, um, that, that, that point about this is a real virus and this yes. virus needs to be managed, yeah points to the, also the need for the social economy to become a much more valued place of work and economic opportunities in this country. Mm. I wanted to think back to the 90s mm. um, and the early 2000s when we were dealing with the height of the HIV pandemic. Mm. And what happened to work during that time is we had a lot of people who yeah. um, would fall ill, would yeah. not be able to work, who were... Um, either ostracized or yeah. put out of the workplace because of the fears around the virus. There were so many ways in which mm. there was an economic impact to HIV that we didn't really speak about very mm. often. Mm. But the one thing that HIV did do is it created very many social economy opportunities. Mm. So many organizations that started, mm. so many initiatives that started mm. that either um, fully or partially employed many people in the community and social sector. Mm. And I think that this is another one of those opportunities mm. in, in, in ways that we need to support each other. There are going to be health, education, transportation needs that we're going to need to meet and we're going to need to provide social sector um, support for. There's a major mental health crisis that is looming mm. um, in the wake of all of this that the social sector is going to need to respond to. And we cannot treat that social sector as a a, it's a non-profit sector, but it is not a non-work sector. There are many people who are working in that sector, yep. who are adding value in that sector, and need to be able to make livelihoods in that sector in a time that we have a big social crisis on our hands as well. So that produces opportunities. So there's opportunities in the for-profit space for innovation, yeah. but also in the non-profit and social te- sector space for really valuing social work and social sector work mm. as real work. I really like mm. that, Tessa, because what that also means in our minds is that we start also shifting and, and from, from, the, from the mindset of waiting 
to hear what government's going to do for us and, right. and mm. actually ourselves get involved and play our part as citizens productively in fixing the problem. So all of us then being part of the solution. Absolutely. We talk about social entrepreneurship and now is the time for social entrepreneurship. If there's ever been a time for social entrepreneurship, it is absolutely now. And we need to think beyond just, you know, it's, it's something that's heartwarming that you do for the society. Mm. It's not just about what's heartwarming and what is warm and fuzzy. It's about a real economy mm. and real lives that need to be saved. And I also want to encourage business owners and large corporations who have CSI budgets now is the time to rethink your CSI budget and make that CSI budget about more than the warm and fuzzies. Make those CSI budgets work so that people have real economic benefit from them and not just a social benefit in a, a snapshot moment. I think um, all companies are going to need to have more of a social face to them yep. in terms of saying, how does my business positively contribute to a social crisis that we're facing right now and how do I repurpose myself and that social CSI budget that I have. Yeah. So it's not just about painting a school, yep. but it's about giving a painter work that they didn't have before. Doris, I want to pick up on that and I want you to just comment on this because Tessa was also talking about our perception often of CSI is a little corner a, a little corner office with maybe three people in the office in, in a big corporation and they do the warm and fuzzy and they just go out there and, you know, drop off parcels and do a little painting exercise and then they take pictures and then they post them whereas if we really think very carefully about this and i believe uh, winnie mandela said this before how do you know they want paint so do the real work mm. in csi get the proper data so in other words form a proper economy in csi where people are properly skilled different levels of skills coming in instead of just doing the warm and fuzzy make sure that whatever you're doing has real impact doris yes on that point, um, at the Institute for Futures Research, we are collaborating with the philanthropy in Daba. Um, and so far, we have created uh, a new model for philanthropy. We just had a, a, a big online session about that this morning where about 55 stakeholders participated and we spoke about it. Um, so, yes, we totally agree and we think that there is a bright and beautiful next future for philanthropy um, and alongside that and, and touching on what Tessa said as well this is the time for beautiful new collaborative initiatives mm. where government and business and academia and civil society and the good deed organizations where everybody works together because in the past we have seen a lot of duplication and we've seen a lot of gaps mm -hmm. huh? And with real collaboration, we're going to be able to apply our resources more efficiently because more than ever before, we must now spend that money or apply the resources or the time or the effort in places where it can really, really make a difference. Let me just ask you to please to be patient with me. We need to take a quick break and then we'll just get a closing statements from you. Tessa Dooms is a social analyst, also director at Jasoro Consulting. Uh, Doris Wilyun, senior futurist at the Institute of Future Research at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. We'll be back with more after this.
at SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. So we continue our conversation looking at really what life is going to be from now on. I think it will never, ever be the same. But I'm in conversation with Tessa Dooms, who's a social analyst and also director at Jasaro uh, Consulting, uh, Doris Yoon, senior futurist at the Institute of Future Research at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. Thank you so much for both of you for being so patient with us and welcome back. So, you know, your, your final take on, on how we look forward, and, and I'll tell you why I say that, with all that sounds quite positive to me this conversation for me has been quite uplifting and quite positive where where are the missing links and where are the gaps is it the fact that we are not sending out these messages enough or is it the fact that while I am battling to put bread on the table it's so difficult for me to think up innovation and new things or what's the problem? Because what I'm hearing when I sit here every single day, I have never in my entire career in media heard a more anxious, a more desperate, a more mm. frustrated listener. And so there must be a disconnect somewhere. With all these wonderful opportunities, that's not the sense on the ground. People are desperate absolutely desperate, frustrated and everything. So I want to see how we can connect all that we've just spoken about now and translate it to people's real lives. Tessa? Yeah, um, I think this is not going to be very people's real lives, uh, my first point, but the first thing I will say is about communicating Mm. a well-thought-through unified vision from government. Mm. And so it's not enough for the president to say and for the minister of finance to say, we're going to have a new economy if you're not going to give any words to what that new economy might look like. Mm -hmm. And so just to say it's going to be a new economy is still very convoluted. And people need to know what that new economy might look like. Mm -hmm. So when you say you're going to localize the economy. What will that mean for the township and village revitalization program? Mm -hmm. Will it mean that you're going to create marketplaces in villages so that people have a place to go and sell their goods? Mm -hmm. Will it mean that you're going to inject um, funds into infrastructure so that you create opportunities in those local spaces? Will it mean that you're going to create databases so that people can easily find um, local suppliers for goods? Um, they need to put, start putting some, some real vision together that has meat and not just bones and rhetoric. Mm. I think that's, that's the communication part yeah. that's missing for me. Mm. But I think the second thing is really a reimagining of work in this country mm. in the sense that what qualifies as work? Mm. People in this country, for, for most of us, we don't even understand what the unemployment figures mean. We don't even know who an unemployed person is. Mm. Never mind who a worker is. But we need to say that work is not just about when a corporate says to you, you are now employed, here's your contract. Mm-hmm. Work is about creating value and finding ways to get paid and finding ways for the state and other regulators to see what you're doing as valuable in, as part of the society. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a mindset shift on our side that we're going to need to um, go through so that everything can be seen as work as opposed to just the corporate side. And I think the last thing I'll say is inequality. Mm -hmm. The conversation we're not having in this country is inequality. We speak a lot about poverty. We speak a lot about unemployment. But inequality is going to be the thing that we're going to need to break the back of if we're going to change the economic prospects of people in this country. Um, The point is that you can't 
you know, set the same conditions for people who are earning 20 million rand a year and the person who's earning 2,000 rand a year. Those are completely fundamentally different worlds, and we need to rectify the inequality question so that people feel like they can participate. Doris, I'm going to rush you if you don't mind, but please, your last okay. comment. Okay, two things. I think um, we are not white fit as people. We are used to immediate responses and immediate things. And then the second one, we're not really change fit. We are already showing symptoms of sort of change fatigue because people make a plan and they think this is how it's going to do work. And then three days later, everything changes again and they have to make another plan and they have to make scrap that one and make another plan. And um, that is frustrating. And then people sort of lose hope and say, well, no, this is going to... We have to accept it's going to take long. And when we make a plan, there's a good chance that we will have to change it next week again. And we must learn to be okay with that. Um, Just as a a matter of reference there, I mean, the economists, they do projections like this all the time. And when they come out, we, we saw a release this morning of 32 leading economists in the country. And usually when they do projections of what growth figures are going to look like, they are within one or two percent of each other. But this morning's projection had a discrepancy between the highest and the lowest of 13 percent. Mm-hmm. So not even the people that are doing this on a daily basis are, are agreeing on what they think. So that's a little bit of a consolation for the people that have to make plans for their little business or, or where it's going to be or what's going to happen. Everybody's unsure. Ladies, let us make the plan that works for today and for tomorrow let's make another plan. I, and I really appreciate you guys. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Doris Fulhoun, Senior Futurist at the University of Stellenbosch Business School and Tessa Dooms, Social Analyst and Jasaro Consulting Director. It's just gone 2 o'clock. I apologize, Utzile Saku. Good afternoon.